Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. SoupX, the Startup Expo, North America's premier startup conference, is March 6th and 7th, 2017, in sunny Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Affordably priced, SoupX is a two-day international conference featuring workshops, panels, speeches, a $50,000 startup competition, and over 100 exhibitors. For more information, go to sup-x.org. Welcome back to the show. Today we have David and Susan Nethero. They're entrepreneurs, investors, speakers, authors, and have been married for 35 years. Guys, welcome to the show. Hey, hey thanks, Kevin. Wonderful yeah. to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have both of you on the show. I, I think you, you guys have done a lot in your career, kind of, um, you know, both kind of separate in business and together in business. Um, and I think, you know, it makes a lot of sense to kind of get kind of the both sides of that, right? Where you've guys done stuff together as, as a husband and wife. And I think a lot of people will find that really kind of interesting. But maybe before we kind of dive into that, maybe let's get to know each one of you a little bit better and start off with kind of where you guys grew up. Sure. Sure, go first. So um, I grew up in, um, I was born in Chicago, but I grew up in the Northeast. Okay. And, uh I was one of three in my family and had a pretty successful dad in business who was a great mentor to me and uh, always encouraged me a lot. And uh, a mom who was a pretty competitive swimmer. And uh, so she she also had a lot of accomplishment. And, you know, I feel like I had a really great, you know, parental relationship that really served me well. And they really gave me a lot of confidence as a young person. That meant a lot to me. Sure. And, and yourself, David? Well, I was born in Cincinnati and, and raised there, as a matter of fact. Okay. Um, and uh, I had one brother, a younger brother, and my dad, too, was a great mentor. He was an independent insurance agent, which meant that you don't you get paid only on what you sell. There was no salary. So I really learned what, what, what hard work looked like and long evenings and long days. And uh, I then went off to college in St. Louis to Principia College, a Christian science school, and I'd been brought up in Christian science. And um, then my first job out of, uh, out of school was at Dow Chemical in Midland, Michigan. And it turned out Susan had graduated a year earlier and also went to Dow. And that's where we met. Okay. So coworkers. <laughs> we both enjoyed a professional relationship. We worked in the same department, but we did really different things. Uh, David was very involved in computer systems and establishing sales and management systems at the time when computerization was just starting to kind of take off and desktops were a whole new idea. And, uh, and then uh, I was in marketing and, um, and communications. Um, so we, you know, we really didn't cross paths too much professionally um, in what we did, but we, uh, we shared, you know, strong professional interests and, you know, Dow was actually a great company, a great place to learn. Um, and we were in corporate headquarters. So we had the access of, you know, of all the things that Dow around the globe, and that was very interesting. And that kind of got us off to a really great start with our corporate careers. So we did that. Um, uh, the corporate world was a good journey for me. I was 18 years. Um, I did end up working for Xerox and Time, Inc. and Marketing Corporation of America, 
along the way, all in marketing and, and sales and sales management, uh, and then eventually in strategic planning and new business development. And David... Well, Susan left out the part that after we started our little courtship in Midland, Michigan, uh, which only lasted about four or five months before I was transferred to Pittsburgh. And so we went for two years with we ha- having a weekend romance where we get together almost every weekend somewhere. We could drive in between and meet in Ohio. My folks lived in Cincinnati. And then um, at, 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 at a magic point, we decided we were ready to get married. And so we both up and resigned our jobs because Susan was in Midland and I was in Pittsburgh. And we ended up um, at her, in her parents' neighborhood, Westport, Connecticut, where Susan got the job at Xerox and some of the companies she mentioned. And I ended up getting another job in the same industry, working for Union Carbide, again, in the chemical industry. And uh, that's where we started our, our married life together and had our, first, uh, had our, had our, had our, our two children there as well. Interesting. No, that, I, I love kind of just how people kind of meet and kind of their careers. And, and so I'm curious then, how did you guys decide to kind of start intimacy and what, what exactly is the, the chain? Well, it, what happened, it was a really tumultuous moment in our, our relationship as well, is that Susan had had a number of really great jobs over the course of five or six years and I was doing very well at uh, Union Carbide and moving up the, the ladder. And um, then Union Carbide sold the business unit I was in to Amico. And Amico decided they were going to relocate that business unit to Atlanta. Okay. And so it was a tough decision. They provided us actually a counselor to talk through this. What should we do? Really? Um, you know, should we move or not move? Because one of us is going to become unemployed. In the end, we decided to make the move. And um, so that was the catalyst for Susan. She ended up getting a couple jobs here, but that was a catalyst for her to begin to think really in an entrepreneurial vein about starting intimate apparel retail business. So Susan? Yeah, so I, it was always a, a area of interest and passion. I love marketing, and I was involved in marketing so many different types of products, but I said I might as well market something that I really like. And uh, I had always struggled with fit uh, as it related to bras, and so whenever we would travel to Europe, I would find uh, beautiful you know, stores that were great, and they would fit people. And I said, we really need to bring that service to America. We really need to help women as their bodies change after you know, having children or getting a little older or diet or exercise or, you know, um, all the things that happen as women, women's uh, lives evolve. And um, I thought it would be great to start intimacy that was really dedicated towards serving women and really helping women feel confident as well as get the proper fit in all their undergarments. So um, it was a fun, it was a fun uh, venture. Uh, it was, um, it was challenging. Sure. Um, we had a, n- a number of years where, um, you know, we, we invested in the business and we didn't take anything out. We just kept putting more in. Um, and thank God during those years that David was prepared to go the long haul and, you know, work in the corporate world and, and do the things that he was doing, which we actually were, were great, you know, mentors to one another, each having different experiences of being able to guide one another. And, and that was kind of a rare and unique experience. And I think we both valued that. Yeah, I mean, that was the time our children were growing up. Um, I was still with Amico, and I was traveling all over. Actually, we were doing a lot of, a lot of work in Asia. And uh, so I brought back experiences for the children. Um, and they saw her mom, I mean, being a mentor. I mean, they saw her mom work hard like I saw my dad. Because it was weekends, evenings. You know, it's when you have your own business, it's, you know, 
there, there's no time off. You're, you're, you're 100% or, or, you, or you typically go out of business. And so I think that was really, really valuable for them to see, you know, both from both our perspectives, what, what it meant to be in the work world. And uh, they're now adults, and we see them, you know, following similar paths to what we did. Yeah, it's kind of exciting, um, you know, that they, uh, in the early years, of course, they were very embarrassed that their mom was involved in intimate apparel. <laughs> you know, that was a pretty per- personal product, so they, they wanted me to tell their friends that we sold a lot of bathrobes and slippers, you know. Sure, but sure. the truth was we, we fit women in bras, and um, we provided a really uh, customer service experience, a real teaching experience for the consumer, and, um, and that experience you know, it was pretty transformative in terms of how women felt about, you know, their bodies. You know, women always judged themselves harshly. And what it turned out was that the majority of women were just in the wrong size bra, you know. And when you got them properly fit, all of a sudden their proportions would change dramatically. And, of course, their comfort improved immediately. And comfort's pretty darn important in someone's life. So um, the combination of all of these elements made it quite a, a customer experience journey for us as we documented kind of the things that we saw from a consumer perspective. And I would come home, you know, so excited to talk about it. And I think David, you know, was always listening, going, oh, my gosh, this is really something what you're doing here. Um, so it was a kind of an opportunity of a lifetime when uh, his company wanted him to actually moved to Asia to manage some of these businesses more directly hands-on. Our children were at a stage where it was not easy to uproot them from school. And, and I said to him, well, maybe you might like to join me in the business. And, uh, you know, you think back on life, Kevin, there's always those pivotal moments where, you know, you can choose A or choose B. This is definitely one of those times where my job was, my, my job was moving to Singapore with or without me. So it was an ultimatum, either I move or I leave. They offered me a year severance, though, which was a real enabler. And then Susan came up with the idea, and I thought she was joking that I'd join her. And the reason I thought she was joking is because the business was still very small. We were maybe doing a couple million dollars, two and a half million dollars a year. And, you know, we, we had high rents, and there just wasn't that much margin to bring home to, to live off of. But we thought if we worked together, maybe we could really grow this and make something out of it. So, um, and I had a year severance. That was the, that was the, that was the, that was the you know, a linchpin. So... I, I resigned um, when when the ultimatum uh, came due and uh, joined Susan, and that was 2001. So Susan had been running the business for 10 years, so I came in after 10 years, and I think what really made a difference, um, people talk about well, how do husbands and wives really get along together, how, is, that a, is that a good idea? And I guess my counsel is probably not a good idea for newlyweds, sure. <laughs> but we've been married 20 years, 20 years at that point. And... Um, so I went in. I didn't displace, displace anyone. We only had like five employees. We had buyers and store managers, and maybe had ten employees, including the salespeople. But I didn't displace anybody. So I came in really on a hunt for how could we build best practices inside the company. And it became evident to me right away that when you're running a retail business, where, where all the cash is is in your inventory. And I was a pretty analytic guy, and actually, actually had worked in IT, you know, early part of my career. So I dove in deep on the inventory and built some really effective replenishment models to help us manage our inventory so that we'd have less inventory. At the same time, Susan was really doing well, increasing sales. So within the first six months that we were together, uh, we were selling more with less inventory. And of course, when you sell more and you have less inventory, then you generate a, a substantially greater amount of cash. 
And that's what happened. So it was that, about six months later when 9-11 happened, and uh, everybody was frightened, of course. Sure. And a few weeks after 9-11, things had settled down a bit, but sales weren't back. And uh, vendors were calling, wanting to know where their money was. And so we actually had you know, stockpiled some cash. So we called all our vendors and offered to pay early in exchange for early payment discounts of 5%, 10%. And so at, that was an early stage of our business. But once we established those terms, we kept those forever. And as the years went on, they became you know, worth millions of dollars to us on an annual basis. But it also was the beginning of a really solid foundation uh, between Susan and I as a couple and our vendors, because they saw the integrity in which we were working with them. And so, um, you know, and, and, and as time went on, the, the, I think, again, in terms of a married couple working together, it's important that you each gravitate towards the tasks and the jobs that you like. And it's important that they be different. And for me, I was analytics. So I ended up doing, you know, I didn't do the accounting per se, but I did more like bookkeeping. Over time, we hired an accountant. But I also did all the leasing. I did, we, we opened, ended up opening um, 18 stores all across the country. So there was a lot of lease deals going on all the time. And... Um, and Susan did all the marketing, all the PR. Um, and buying, the buying, initial buying mixes. And, and she so managed the sales team. And over time, I began managing sort of the infrastructure from which we create a culture and manage some, you know, um, you know, employees in terms of like performance metrics and performance reviews and criteria for hiring. And so there became a, a natural division, which I think is important when couples um, come together in business. And I think most couples, when they get married, find that, they, that they're not identical, that they actually gravitate towards different things in life. And if they can just apply that to the, the business that they're jointly running, you know, that, for us anyway, that, that was a real key to our, our ability to work um, harmoniously together. <laughs> sure. No, we, I, we had quite a journey. Yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, Sorry. What I was going to say is we, uh, we had quite a journey with the business. Um, when David joined me, uh, we set a goal that we were going to start an advertising campaign and really see if we could, you know, double our sales in a two-year period of time. And um, and we slid in, and we, we just met that deadline uh, uh, about a week or so before we had the next biggest thing that happened really in our life, which was uh, uh, we got an opportunity to be on the Oprah show, um, which resulted in um, us having uh, five appearances over a number of years um, on her show and kind of became regarded as the experts in the category um, for her and really nationally were recognized. Not, not only did we help um, our own business grow, but we helped uh, the industry grow a lot. The year immediately following Oprah, uh, the industry grew by $700 million. Wow. So that was quite a quite a, a tribute to uh, the power of Oprah. <laughs> sure. And, uh, and certainly uh, we, we were able to benefit from that. We, uh, we did maintain a great relationship with her, which, you know, served us well and got us on other networks. So, you know, the Today Show and Dr. Oz and the Doctors and, you know, Inside Edition and, and a lot of print and radio uh, shows. And we made PR an important part of our our success mix and how we would, you know, uh, go open a store. We would really, you know, land on the ground and, and just, you know, for three weeks, we just 
you know, do one appearance after the next trying to inform and teach women about how they could feel more confident in their bodies and feel more confident in their bras. And, uh, and it was a fun, it was a fun, it was a very personal story, but it was a fun story and, you know, and, and helped us to, um, you know, take a store that might have opened at a million dollars and all of a sudden, you know, we could open at two and a half million or maybe even three. So all of that really helped us as we were trying to, you know, grow the footprint across the country. Sure. No, I, yeah, I, sure. I, lo- I love the story. I'm, I'm curious. I want to dive a little bit deeper into a couple things. The first thing, how did you guys get discovered by Oprah and how did she kind of reach out to you guys or find you guys? Well, it's a, it's a great story, actually. After I had been with Susan, I guess three years, it was 2004, we had an opportunity to acquire a, a, a store on Madison Avenue that was um, doing, doing the same thing we were. They were a small boutique. They were selling lingerie. And uh, the owner wanted out, and we, we were introduced by a vendor. And so we negotiated the deal, and we bought, bought the company. And shortly after that, we hired a PR person in New York because this was just a neighborhood store sure. in Carnegie Hill, part of Manhattan. And, um, and our goal was to make it like all, we wanted to appeal to the entire Upper East Side and maybe all of Manhattan. So we hired a PR person who ended up um, getting great interviews with um, a lot of the magazines, you know, in, in, in New York, uh, some, most of which were actually national. And one was Oprah Magazine. Okay. So, so tell them how that whole Oprah Magazine, they're going to do an article. This is, this is my April of 2005, and it was going to come out in the summer. I think they're going to call it the Bra Bible. But, and Susan was going to be a future portion of it. So yeah, what so, happened then? So what, you know, most magazines that always talked about, you know, the, the best bra in the world or whatever. And through this journey, we convinced the Oprah people that it was really not about the best bra, but about the right fit. Interesting. And that was a story that hadn't been told. So that was kind of interesting to them. And they did start out with the idea that it would be called the Bra Bible. But uh, later on, they called it the Bra Revolution because they just couldn't believe how how significant it was. But um, we actually did photo shoots with women, average everyday women. We didn't hire models or anything like that. And we showed the editorial staff, you know, what the before and after differences were. And they were pretty spellbound by it. And um, after we left doing the photo shoot for them, which was quite quite fun and, and exciting. We had six women that we had done before and after images with, and we had an editor there who was writing the story as we went along. Um, we got a call from the Oprah people the following Monday that they wanted us to come on for a Mommy Day makeover for Mother's Day in 2005. So uh, that was quite an opportunity. And, and the same thing happened really when we went to Chicago for the show that the editors and the um, stylists and the photographers and the producers kept looking at the makeovers that we we're doing. And they said, my God, you're changing women's lives. Like women literally look like they're 10 pounds thinner and they look more proportionate and shapely. And the women were just thrilled to death. And um, so when Oprah got word of this, she really was, you know, she was pretty blown away by it. And so uh, we actually got an opportunity to fit her, which was pretty fun. And uh, within a month, the show actually aired, uh, you know, live, sure. and or, and uh, and Oprah invited me to come on upstairs and fit her for bras because she just wanted to see, you know, how good she could look. And uh, she called me about uh, a few weeks later to say, you know, I, I this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. You know, I've I've been shopping, I've been buying bras for years. How could I have not known this? And 
you know, the thing is, the truth of the matter is that most women blame their bodies for the fit problems they had. They didn't realize it was all about getting the right fit. And most people associate comfort with looseness. And so when, you know, they buy something that's loose, it shifts on their body and all of a sudden they fall down. So, you know, or it's like trying to lift people up and make them feel confident again. Uh, getting the right fit is imperative. So that was kind of the roots and the, and the basis of, uh, of our uh, yeah, and I, marketing. Yeah, but I, I think Oprah really saw that. I, she had she had declared before that show that she had her favorite bra, okay. and I think what she realized is that it's not about the favorite bra or the right bra. It's about the correct fit, and 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 beyond that, with the correct fit came this emotional experience for the women who were being fit, and that they felt better, they felt more confident, uh, they looked better. Uh, they could look like they, they, they lost 10 pounds. And Oprah completely got behind that and recognized that this was, this was really a story that had never been told. Sure. At least not since, you know, you go back generations when that, that's all there was was the small profit boutiques around town. And so um, Susan was invited back four more times for a total of five appearances on Oprah over a three or four year period. Yeah, it was amazing. And, and so, you know, what became really a core competency of intimacy was the ability to really, we called telling the story. We had five pillars when we ran the company, and one of the important ones was telling the story, which I like the way we framed that because that's really what it was. The story was about how a woman can, can have a life-changing experience by coming into one of our stores. And, um, and traditionally, people call that marketing, advertising, PR, but it's all that rolled together. Sure. So every time we'd go open a new market, um, we would hire a publicist who would introduce us to all the contacts she had, and we'd provide all the contact, and it, and it, and it would be Susan doing radio interviews, television interviews, uh, magazine interviews. And so we were able to roll out stores with a really, you know, a really great launch um, across the country. And that was the key to our, you know, the success of our business. Sure. No, I, I love that. I, I think that's... That's kind of fascinating to me, and, and, and I love kind of how you guys used stuff that you kind of learned in the corporate world into your own business, and then you guys kind of created these whole campaigns around like good content and almost like teaching people something and like teaching people why your product and fit was so much better than, you know, kind of traditionally what was out there, right? And I think when people can relate to that and you can make them feel better about themselves, like there's nothing better than that, right? Right, yeah, that's a real win for everybody. And what was really unique too is that um, we kind of dovetailed with um, our storytelling. It's really a lot like what we see today in social media with a lot of storytelling going on, right? Sure. So, but that wasn't, of course, feasible at that time, although we did have a website that was 100% dedicated to just teaching women answering women's questions and teaching them about fit. It, it wasn't e-commerce related at the time. It was really education and awareness based. But, um, but I think that one of the th most important things um, in that journey was the fact that we did have this corporate experience, as you mentioned. Um, and had we not had that, I think we would have been maybe like other retailers. We would have not uh, uh, embraced this as a much larger opportunity um, I never thought we would open a single store. I really was always looking at scaling something, um, but we were trying to do it in an efficient way, and uh, capital was not really that available for women. So that kind of ties in a little bit to why we're so passionate today after having 
sold our business about helping to fund other women entrepreneurs because women have gotten the short end of the stick and they haven't always gotten the capital um, that men have gotten, especially even as entrepreneurship has grown substantially in the last five to 10 years. It wasn't, it was not that popular actually when, when I started our business, but, um, but now, you know, it's all the rage. So uh, today we can channel a lot of our energy to help future women business owners to have success and to get the capital to do things a lot faster than maybe it took us, you know? Sure. No, and I, I do want to cover kind of your, your guys' involvement in investing um, in a bit, but I'm, I'm curious to know kind of how did you grow, you know, kind of to this nationwide chain and like walk me through that process and then what made you ultimately decide to kind of sell the business? Well, the two were dovetailed. Um, after we appeared on the, after Susan appeared on the first time on Oprah, you know, we, you know, we, we, we had a pretty, we were on people's radar screen, sure. including um, some private equity uh, people, venture capitalists, and, uh, and we had no interest in bringing in a partner. But um, in the end, one private equity firm, you know, put forward a pretty compelling argument that you know they could really help us grow and provide capital for that growth, and. Uh, on the other hand, we were we, we we had mapped out our own models, showing that we might be able to do this without any outside capital. We might be able to cash flow enough from our existing operations to uh, to do this on our own. And at that point, we had just three stores: the Atlanta, a New York, and at that time, one in Chicago, which we did because Oprah wanted sure. to do a, a big uh, show there. And so, um, so anyway, we 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 gave this a lot of serious you know, review. And we brought in some, you know, close advisors to give us some counsel. And one of them was the, um, the guy who was the CEO of our largest supplier, okay. a Belgium company. And some of your listeners might know the brands, Mary Jo and Prima Donna, the company's name Vanderbilt. Okay. And so he, and he, and he, he himself, his name is Ignace, and he is a, uh, a Wharton grad. He ran the uh, Boston Consulting Group for, um, BCG and just a really bright guy and 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 and, and someone who we become close to, and he proposed that they would like to make an investment in intimacy because they only made bras and they didn't sell bras and panties to department stores and they only sold them to independent boutiques and they wanted to have a stronger position in that sector of their of their value chain and so it made great strategic sense for them to actually invest in a company that you know, that was growing like we were, and we were probably the fastest growing, you know, or we had projections for, for substantial growth. And, uh, and, and the three stores we had were doing tremendous volume. Um, and so, so it all, all made great sense for them. And it made great sense to us too. And uh, at the time, none of our children had any interest in the business. So this is one of those big, you know, moments in your life where you got to decide, do you, do you want to do this on your own or do you want to bring in, bring in somebody? That's gonna, and the the way the deal was structured is that we going to ultimate, it was going to be contractual. We would be contractually obligated to sell the business after a certain period of time, uh, and that we would take in a minority share from them in the beginning, and then sell the majority later on. So that means we're going to exit the business. That's the big, that's the big question on the table. Do we want to do that or not? Um, and 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 as it was, or as it turned out, we decided to do that just because we felt so strongly in the partnership, we thought it was so synergistic and that they brought so much to the table. Um, but they also brought capital to the table. And so we grew the company with a combination of capital that they brought and capital that we had. And, um, 
of course, their interest was to see, you know, do we have a large number of stores? Because they're a big corporation. They're a publicly traded company in Belgium. And so they wanted to have a presence that was a national footprint and that was substantial. So, um, you know, we were up to the task and we were doing two, three, four stores a year. We did that for four or five years. In the end, we had 18 stores. And after five years of operating in this sort of partnership with them, uh, we sold um, remaining shares to them. And then they took over, and that was 2012. Got you. But you guys are both still involved in it, right? No. we No, totally no so uh, what happened was, yeah, so 2000, uh, 2012 uh, was our five-year uh, time frame of running the business. So we agreed to step down from the day-to-day operations. Okay. And, move, and we, of course, still retained our board role. Oh, okay. That's um, how you're and we, we, Yeah, and we retained our board role until 2015. Gotcha. So we just stepped out. Uh, yeah, so last year we've had no, no, no involvement. Yeah, yeah. Which was part of the, the, the overall plan that was put together back in 2006 and seven. In some ways you might say, gosh, you know, how could you leave the baby that you left behind, mm-hmm. you know, and all this sort of thing. But um, we, had, we had a lot, we had a lot of reward and a lot of pleasure and it was a great fun journey to grow the company. Um, we would have stayed on and we probably would still enjoy a lot of elements of it today. Um, the world has changed a bit though. E-commerce has become more important. Um, it's been a challenge. There have been more challenges. Certainly 2008, nine, 10 were tough. Um, you know, retail, I think it's being challenged. I do feel though today that the service that we were providing and the, the guidance that we gave customers and so forth, um, still really valuable and uh, really meaningful. And I think, you know, retailers today have to really have a differentiated proposition for the customer in order to attract her to come in the store. But clearly people walked out of our store and, you know, told their friends, their neighbors, brought in their family members, you know. I mean, it was a generational kind of word of mouth business that evolved. And, uh, and that was quite rewarding and quite fun. And the other big thing that David and I were really committed to is if we sold the company, we wanted to make sure that uh, the employees had an opportunity to really grow with the company. And we did share a lot of values with the new company. In fact, before we uh, formed our final partnership, they had made an offer to us. Um, we went for a Christmas holiday uh, after Christmas, actually, and took our younger daughter and we went to meet the family members so that we would understand the culture of the new company um, and see if it dovetailed with ours. Um, and, you know, we walked away with a warm feeling about, you know, these are the kind of people that, that we can do business with, that we can share and respect and value the same sorts of things. And today their mission is still quite similar. You know, they're, they're st- still very, very committed to really making the customer experience extraordinary. That's yeah, they awesome. rebanded the company. Yeah. They rebranded it uh, in order to have international trademark rights to a comp- the name Rigby and Peller. Okay. So the stores are still operating. In fact, they've got, I don't know how many, I, I'm not involved anymore, but I think close to 100 stores around the, around the globe. That's awesome. Um, under the, yeah, it's awesome, under the Rigby and Peller uh, brand name. So, and I think this experience is still the same rich, great, you know, experience for women who come into Rigby and Peller stores uh, as it was when it was an intimacy store. Sure. I, th- I think like that's got to be just rewarding in itself, right? That you guys created something from nothing and now it's kind of this global thing, right? Even though it got renamed, you guys still created that from nothing. 
Yeah, it is something special. I, I th- yeah. Thanks for saying that. I, Thank I agree. You. It we, does make us feel special. We feel great about it. And then it was a great example for our daughters, as it turned sure. out. Um, our oldest daughter did, we did ask her to come back and help us to, during the last five years. And uh, she became so passionate about entrepreneurship um, that she started her own business now, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. And so she's in year three at about a million dollars run wow. rate. Um, so that's not bad. Well, she and, has uh, a, um, that's really a good. Meal kit. Yeah. yeah, it's called Garnish and Gather. And it's the, the Atlanta version of Blue Apron, if you will. Everything they source is from local farms around greater Atlanta and, and, and this part of Georgia. That's um, great. It's, yeah, it's really fun. And she started it at the beginning of that whole idea of, uh, of creating meal kits where people can get a recipe and all the ingredients and all they need to do is have fun cooking in the kitchen and, and feel the sense of reward from, you know, being able to sit down and eat a healthy meal with their, with their family. Um, and then our youngest daughter is involved in social entrepreneurship and she's a real go-getter and um, started her own NGO. And she's just, so she's really, you know, committed to that. So we, you know, we feel it was not only is it a, a when parents are committed to what they're doing, but when they're passionate about it and they're, and they're really having fun and, and making it a, a part of their overall lives, I think it's a good example for, for you know, the, the kids. And, you know, a lot of talk today about how millennials don't want to work for money anymore. They want to work for <laughs> satisfaction and experiences. And I think everybody would agree that was involved on, especially working during those years with us, that, you know, we had quite a, a powerful team working together, and it was a whole lot of fun. Sure. No, that that's great. And you're right. I, I think it's it's really cool that you guys kind of obviously inspired your own children. But I think, you know, you guys have inspired other people, um, you know, through through a bunch of things you're doing. And I, I think like it's kind of a good segue into um, the book, uh, Mental Mastery of Chemotherapy. Do you guys want to kind of talk about uh, the book and kind of why you decided to write it? Well, um, another another big moment in my life uh, was in December of 2012 when I was informed that I had colon cancer. It was stage 3B, uh, pretty far along, and um, I mean, that's a shocker. You, sure. you know, yeah, they, the cure rate's high, but it's not 100%. And So anyway, within a few days after digesting the fact that I have, you know, a, a disease that, that could be fatal, not likely to be, but could be, I, I was then told I'm going to go through six months of chemotherapy. And I sat down with a, uh, a chemo uh, uh, oncology nurse who read me a list of, I don't know, it's probably 100 things that could go wrong with you uh, as a result of the chemotherapy. You might react negatively in this way or that way. You could have numbness. You could have a sensitivity to cold. And uh, it was overwhelming. I was really, you know, I mean, I may or may not die from the cancer. The pro- prognosis is I probably won't. But definitely I was going to start the chemo. and It was only two days away. Oh, wow. But I, I got to really deal with this, you know, in, in a constructive manner or I'm going to, you know, it's going to be really a, a problem for me. So I've worked with a, uh, Susan and I both worked with a renowned psychologist named Dr. George Pratt. And we worked with him in our, in our business to help create really positive mental visions and images of where we want the business to go. And so, and he helped me quit smoking as well and some other constructive things that for me personally, I decided to apply everything that I had learned from him to the chemotherapy. And I began doing meditation on a daily basis, and I began using the meditation to solidify in my mind a positive mental uh, image of perfect health and perfect fitness. And so um, 
I began keeping a journal of what I was doing, but I was religious and doing this meditation every day. It was, it was like um, my, my own script, my own self, you know, med, med, meditation script. And, um, and I kept a log, which was useful to show my doctor. Uh, I tracked how many miles I walked or ran or whatever I was able, able to do during that particular period. And so in the end, Susan says, you know, you've got all this. You should put this together in a book and see it and help other people. So I did. I wrote a book. It's a short, it's a workbook, really. It's designed to be read in a single session of chemo, which for me was the better part of a half day, but it's about an hour read maybe. And it's a workbook where every other page you can write your own story about your own experience. But um, I, I really hope it's helpful for other people. It was, it was what the things I did I thought were really constructive for me. And the book's called... Uh, the Mental Mastery of Chemotherapy, and you can buy it anywhere on Amazon, online, but you can also go to my website, which is yourmentalmastery.com, and there you can uh, not only buy the book, but you can see some interviews I've done with the, for American Cancer Society about methods I use and techniques, that, the things that I did on how to, how to find the best doctor or how to communicate better with your doctor. Um, and... Um, so if any, any listeners are experiencing chemotherapy or know anybody that is, I suggest that you at least direct them to the website where all that information is free, including a YouTube, the actual YouTube, a video on YouTube of the actual meditation that I did uh, for six months every morning. Um, and again, it's all about using meditation to really ground in your subconscious mind images of whatever you want in life. Sure. That, that, that's amazing. And I'm, I'm glad that you, you know, you turned something negative into like a positive, right? And just, you guys have seemed to kind of give back your entire career, right? And I, I think that's, that's amazing, right? And not a lot of people can actually say truthfully that they've done that. Yeah, my oncologist who wrote the forward to the book said that, you know, that I really wanted to make a legacy out of <laughs> this chemotherapy experience. And, um, and, and I did. I mean, in the end, I felt really fulfilled in being able to write down and, and publish uh, my experiences with the hope that if it helps one person, it'll be a bestseller in my mind. <laughs> totally. But I love that. that. It's awesome. And I, I love the fact that, like, you guys are just kind of giving back and you're still giving back. And, and you guys are both involved um, with Golden Seeds and kind of investing. So do you kind of want to walk me through what you guys are kind of doing on the investment side. And you're, you guys have also, both of you sit on a bunch of boards. Um, do you guys want to mention what you guys are doing to actually, again, give back, you know, financially and being on different boards? Sure. So um, uh, probably the most significant thing we are doing is Golden Seeds, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Sure. But we also um, are pretty active with other nonprofit boards. So uh, I sit on the national board for uh, the uh, southeastern board for um, uh, UNICEF, um, which amazing. is uh, a great, amazing organization, the um, most established, oldest humanitarian organization, and very efficient in its work. Um, and it's very, been very exciting this past year. We took a trip to Vietnam, and we're able to see the work that's going on there to help them be more sustainable in creating better schools, education, and opportunities for all the children at UNICEF dedicated to children's health, welfare, education, and safety. Um, so that's one really uh, exciting role. And David's played a, an important part in attending with me some of our advocacy meetings in Washington, where we 
have the opportunity to talk with legislators about the work that UNICEF is doing. Um, so that's great. And we, we do it again as a pair, as a partnership. Um, the other thing um, I've been pretty involved in is a women's organization called Committee of 200, which is uh, top women executives and entrepreneurs and founders of businesses who are, you know, running um, multi-million dollar companies. And, um, and we do a lot of work mentoring young women in business school, uh, young women in their careers, and then uh, serving women who are established entrepreneurs, helping them to achieve the next rung of success, uh, uh, both financially as well as uh, from a reward standpoint. So I sit on the national board for that, as well as um, the Southeastern Regional Chair for engagement of our members. We have about 500 members across the country. Wow. Um, so those are really fun. Um, but I think the one that, again, David and I do as a partnership, which is really great, is our investing in women entrepreneurs, which I think I mentioned a little bit earlier. David and I both experienced how challenging it is to raise capital sure. uh, in the early stages with a young business. And certainly, um, you know, today things have changed a lot, and angel investment has been a really great way to fund young entrepreneurs that are at those kind of, I wouldn't call it unproven stages, but clearly um, the businesses are finding their way, finding the most successful methods of distribution and the best product and, you know, really honing their business in every element and aspect. Um, So David and I play an active role in investing at Golden Seeds, which is dedicated solely to women entrepreneurs. Yeah, the this this really resonated with us when we were introduced to Golden Seeds, and, and, and we were introduced to them the year we sold our company or, or, or stepped down from operations in 2012, and that Golden Seeds only invest in women, who are women founders or women CEO startup companies. And so it's early stage investing. It's called angel investing also. And um, as you might know, women have been under un, underrepresented in terms of receipt of capital, that most of the startup capital goes to men. Sure. And so Golden Seeds is, you know, wants to move the needle in, in, in any way they can, and they have um, over the years. They've, they've gone yeah, I from, think they've gone from around, um, around 7 or 8% of the capital, uh, getting only, only 7 or 8% of the capital, to now around 30%, um, you know, wow. 28 to 30%. Um, and venture capital is still pretty bad. I mean, women are not getting venture capital um, funds. Uh, and so, you know, there's still a great need for change there. Um, but Golden Seeds has been the real shining star uh, organization um, with several hundred investors across the country um, in, uh, you know, in New York and Boston, Silicon Valley. Southern California, Dallas, and then there are those of us who are kind of scattered throughout, and we attend meetings on a monthly basis and participate in all of the major uh, events that they do at Golden Seeds to try to get more women entrepreneurs from the Southeast as well as to invest in other national concepts that we see in New York. I think what we've learned through this experience is that if women are going to receive more money, we need more women investing the money. Interesting. And Golden yeah. Seeds is about 275 members, and I think about 85% are women. So I'm, I'm a minority there. And, um, and that's what it takes, though. That's what it sure. takes. It takes it takes a majority of women with capital investing in women who need capital. Sure. And that's what Golden Seeds does, and I think that's really making an impact. And I also, uh, Golden Seeds has also learned that 
you know, women of high, high net wealth or whatever are not likely to want to uh, take on the risk associated with entrepreneurship that people who have been entrepreneurs have assumed. So, you know, David and I, having been operator entrepreneurs, you know, we, we understand what it's like to live with risk every day and, uh, and how to mitigate that and, and what you can do to make a more successful organization. And, uh, but it seems to be um, women who have been entrepreneurs are more willing to invest in other women entrepreneurs. And Golden Seeds crosses all industries. So we're doing things in life sciences, business to business, technology, um, fashion, um, you know, you consumer products. So, um, and the way we, we make uh, show a level of commitment is we invest with our pocketbooks, you know, we invest with our money. Um, and I don't think there's any greater confidence that you can give somebody than to say to them, I'm willing to invest in, in your business and in your ideas and what you're attempting to do. So I think the people who come to Golden Seeds and who get through the, the various stages, you know, are really diligent, thoughtful, smart women who have every bit the opportunity to create a scalable business that, you know, any man would. In fact, I think there's been evidence to show that women uh, – can create more profitable organizations that have better culture than, you know, than even men. But, um, but we're, we're excited to be able to participate. And I, we were looking the other day, but we've got 15 concepts or something like that we've invested in now, David? Yeah, I think it's about that. Um, about five a year or something yeah. like that we've done. Yeah, I mean, anybody who aspires to be an angel investor my my counsel is you've got to have you got to have a portfolio of probably 20 companies in order to represent enough diversity because this is a high risk you know sector right startups don't not not many startups succeed is is the is the harsh reality yeah no that's that's no that that's really good advice so we're kind of coming to the end of the show so i'm i'm curious to know you guys have had tons of success in kind of the corporate world your own businesses, mentoring other people. And, I, and I'm curious to know each one of your, your guys' thoughts on this is if you could give your younger self a piece of advice, what would it be? And I, I'm curious to see what each one of you would say to that. Well, actually, I, 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 I'm, I'm happy that you phrased the question that way because I've also, with the work I've done with George Pratt, gone through little you know, coaching sessions where he instructs you to go back and talk to your younger self and try and, you know, give your younger self advice. Sure. And the advice that I gave, would give myself is to be confident in, in my ability to, 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 to pursue what I want in life. It, and, I, and when I frame it for younger people, I say, it, you know, to tell yourself it's okay. Not to get stressed out over every little thing that comes up, but to know that it's going to be okay because you're doing the right things, you're working hard, you've got the right intentions, it'll be okay. That's my advice. Interesting. Susan? Well, and I would say as a woman, like a lot of times I think we believe um, that if you put your head down and do the right thing that everybody will notice. Um, and certainly in the corporate world, that's not the case. And as an entrepreneur, you have to learn how to be your own best advocate and build win-win-win relationships. Uh, relationships where not only are you helping others in what they're trying to accomplish, um, that's serving your needs, but also creating a larger, a better universe, a better world out there. And um, 
I think when you have that kind of focus and you're, you're your own best advocate and advocate for the others that you serve in your life, then um, only goodness can come to you. And uh, I'm a big believer in gratitude. So the other thing I would say is to recognize how important gratitude is in planting seeds for the future. And uh, I truly believe that, you know, that's been a big part of the reason David and I have have had such a journey of, of, of joy and success and um, opportunity. Sure. That's, that's great. But sadly guys, we're coming to the end of the show. So maybe let's close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about yourselves, golden seeds. And if you want to mention again, your uh, children's startups and people can go online and get more information about those as well. Sure. So, um, my daughter's uh, business is called Garnish and Gather, and uh, garnishandgather.com. And, uh, and so that's a really wonderful website to talk all about, you know, how food is important in your lives. Our other daughter has joined a company um, which is called Women Strong, and uh, this company is providing help uh, to teenage girls and women uh, to help get them on their feet in urban markets around the world. So they work with five different NGOs. And Women Strong is a terrific um, website to go to because they tell stories from Ghana, India, uh, Kenya, Washington, D.C., and Haiti. So that's pretty impressive. And Golden Seeds is a great website uh, to go to. It's goldenseeds.com. Uh, uh, and there's a whole section for people interested to be investors or to interested in entrepreneurship and what the process is all about. And Golden Seeds is active with Angel Capital Association of America, which is also another wonderful uh, nonprofit organization dedicated towards advancing uh, angel capital to help fuel entrepreneurship in our country, which I think could help with a lot of our economic problems. All the growth in this country is coming from business startups. Uh, so those are a few resources. David? And the book is um, yourmentalmastery.com. Perfect. Well, David, Susan, I really appreciate you guys taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you. And, you know, if either one or both of your daughters wants to be on the show, I would love to, you know, have them on the show and talk kind of deeper dive into what they're working on. So, you know, that being said, again, really appreciate you guys being on the show and uh, have a good rest of your day. Thanks Thank so you, much. All right. Enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. And keep them in the future.